0: This podcast is produced by The Brand Is Female. Hi, I'm Moongi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu
1: podcast. I mean, that's a big edict of sort of the movement I'm now a part of, of white and privileged parents who are showing up at schools, to show up, shut up, and stay put is the idea. This week, my guest is an absolute light of wisdom and love, and her
0: name is Courtney Martin. She's an activist, an entrepreneur, a journalist, and a writer. In this episode, we discussed a lot, but most importantly, Courtney's purpose work, the lessons she learned from her daughter's school, the subsequent book that came from that, as well as why she may no longer be identifying herself as a third wave feminist. If you haven't already read about the reductive seduction of other people's problems, I recommend you go read her article after this episode. Courtney has said that her metaphorical happy place is asking people questions, so I felt lucky to be the one asking questions this time. Here's our conversation. Courtney Martin, welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. I'm so excited to be speaking with you today.
1: Thank you so much, Mungi. It's such an honor to be here.
0: Oh, no, the honor is all mine. Um, So I'm going to start with the first question, and it's, it's about how our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as a person. And I know that you have a pretty extensive resume, but I'm wondering what is not on that that you think people should know about you?
1: I love that question. Um, Particularly, I'm I'm weirdly one of these like very ancient millennials who have never had a real-time, like full-time job. So my resume has been circulated so rarely that sometimes people (laughs) will ask me, you know, like young people I know will ask me for advice about resumes. And I'm like, I'm actually the last person on earth to ask about this. So honestly, I don't know what goes on resumes, but I do think this probably doesn't. Um, It is in my bio because it it matters a lot to me, which is that I live in this thing called a co-housing community. And it's basically this um, community in Oakland, California, where there's nine separate units, so like nine different families. And each of our homes has everything a typical home would have. But then we also have communal spaces together. So we have like Mm. um, an industrial-sized kitchen, an eating area, a garden, a tool shed, all these things. And I mention that because... For me, living into this experience of living communally, which I've done for eight years, was a real leap of faith. It's so un-American in, by mm-hmm. nature, but it was something I'd always been attracted to. And when a unit came up in this um, community, my husband and I kind of jumped on it, and I especially jumped on it. I sort of dragged him along. <laughs> and it's been the most profound teaching for me in community, in um, unconditional love, in like radical hospitality, all these things that I now hold very dear about who I'm trying to be in the world, and who I'm attracted to, are really rooted in the learning I've done in this community. So I feel like that should be on my theoretical resume that that has never and will never probably exist.
0: (laughs) Well, I read that it was, you know, like your happy place. And when I was reading about it, I was like, oh, this kind of seems like living out like Ubuntu, like in the everyday, the way that I was reading about it. But I'll be honest, when I was speaking to someone, I was like, I'm getting a little PTSD because it's making me think of like, group projects and university where we're all reliant on each other. And like, sometimes someone doesn't pull their weight. And I'm just like, not really good. If you say you're going to do something and you don't do it.
1: It's the worst. Absolutely. <laughs> it, and it it is bad in those ways. I mean, it it requires a lot of grace and a lot of um, like riding waves of frustration with people at different points and Mm -hmm. um, you know real talk you're not going to get 25 people intergenerationally and interfaith and interracially (laughs) living together without some of that group project experience. Um, Although I will say the art of this kind of living for me has been uh, a lot of wisdom about what to do together and what not to do together like what kind of expectations to have and okay. what kind of expectations to let go of so we have we have after the community has been around for 21 years like I said I've lived here for 8 so after that amount of time you kind of figure out for example this is like a little thing but it it illustrates it we do when it's not covid times have communal meals together on thursday nights and sunday nights we have learned that we will not exchange any money whatsoever um, that it is one household's job to shop, cook, and clean on their particular night. Okay. and then we each take a turn. So it's not like we're constantly figuring out well, like so and so spent this much money on like a yeah. really nice fish that night. so now we're all stuck paying for it, even though it tasted terrible. you know, it's like we we've <laughs> taken out some of the complexity and um, and then we've inserted some grace because you have to be like if one yeah. family's struggling and they made, rice and beans, then everyone's gonna show up with a smile on their face and like enjoy the rice and beans and be loving about it. Um, So we we have really over the years perfected how much group project vibe to tolerate.
0: (laughs) That's good. I mean, I imagine overall, like when you, you know, it's sort of now probably just like second nature to just always put yourself in the shoes of others. Like you're just constantly thinking about other, how what you do or say is going to affect other people.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think it's a real training in, um, you know, there's that saying like, you you never know what someone's burden that they're carrying is. And I think yeah. in this community, we kind of actually do know each other's burdens to some extent. There's been unemployment, there's been um, an awesome woman in the community had a really severe stroke. So it's, it's like a very close up intimate study and in just like human frailty and beauty. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that household who's dealing with unemployment is not going to, you know, go all out on a common meal night. And right. being close to that and and loving on them and also, you know, appreciating my own stability economically in that moment. It's like yeah. it's just sort of all of humanity, but but very up close. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I do have children. And so that part is a huge benefit is that there's this intergenerational community here that can help mother and, and father and uncle and aunt and and grandmother my kids in a way that I wouldn't otherwise have. Yeah,
0: instead of just like the signal family, just, yeah, yeah. Um, so what would you say that you, is your purpose work?
1: Mm-hmm. I'm one of these like incredibly lucky people who at 41 gets to only do purpose work. Um, I write books, I do journalism, um, I write this newsletter, and those different kinds of writings scratch different itches for me they're like different forms of purpose so I do know how to do like very traditional journalism and sometimes I do that particularly from a solutions journalism angle so I'm really interested in writing compellingly and rigorously about how things work not always how they're broken which feels like Mm -hmm. very important to me um, as kind of a balance to the majority of journalism one sees Um, so that's kind of my like real nerdy (sighs) researchy brain that loves to like take a thorny problem and like really wrap my mind around it. I did some series, um, for example, about like the racial wealth gap in this country or about caregiving um, for the New York Times, where I sort of like really dig into it on this broad systemic level and then try to find specific solutions that are worth looking at more closely. So that's like my super nerdy analytical side. But I also do a lot of writing that is more memoirish um, that's about my experiences of like being a human, being a mother, yeah. being a daughter. Um, and so that for me, is a very profound experience of kind of like noticing my life, paying attention to my my feelings, paying attention to patterns that I notice, paying attention to the like delight of parenting and also the pain and heartbreak of it and and mm-hmm. trying to kind of just be a portal to get that down on uh, paper. And that writing people respond to in such a profound way that it feels yeah. very purposeful. Cause it's just like, wow, I kind of thought this was just like me and my own little idiosyncratic <laughs> brain and heart. And then some, you know, I'll get like a flood of comments or emails about how it helped someone or name something that someone needed to have named. And that's just like, makes me feel so in my purpose. And then I do actually a lot of work um, which is not as visible because it's, it's inherently invisible helping people tell their own stories. So like helping people craft TED Talks or helping people write op-eds. Um, and for me, that is really um, like social justice work. It's like, I I tend to work with uh, folks in the global south or women of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a true joy to like accompany people on thinking about how to, you know, sort of tell their story in a way that will translate to popular audiences. Um, I just am so moved by getting to be close to people's stories and build the kind of trust that one has to build in order to help kind of midwife people's stories along. So that's, that's work that I do that like you would never, it's my name is never on it. So it just is in the world and I'm very, it feels like a deep purpose for me.
0: And I mean, I love your writing. So I kind of want to ask like, what, what is your writing process? Cause someone asked me this, I think last night and I was like, honestly, I write really well from bed, and I don't think anyone else ever says that.
1: Oh, I love that! I wish I I could write from bed. My children would find me. So, where <laughs> the way I I write now is, I basically like this last book because of the COVID year. I hid in. We have a 1975 bright orange VW bus that my husband mm. convinced me to buy against all of my all of my judgment. I was like, "All right, fine." And it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened because it became my office. (laughs) And it's like, it's basically like this metal, you know, you shut the door and you're like Mm -hmm. inside of just like a chamber and my children can't open the door because it's like from the 70s. So it's very hard to open. (laughs) <laughs> and um, so I would go in there. I'm an early morning writer, so I don't know if you're in bed early morning or late night, if, or if it matters.
0: Early, yeah, like a early workout morning. and shower, and then and then the writing in the morning. Oh,
1: and then you get back in bed.
0: Yes, but I like in, obviously that. in like clean clothing, not. Yes, yeah. yeah. Fascinating.
1: Yeah. No, I'm like roll over, get your hands <laughs> on the keyboard kind of person. I do need a cup of coffee, so I like. I need the shower because actually a lot of words come to me in the shower after I've slept well. That's great. Well, and also exercising. I mean, I do, um, I do often have what I think are fantastic ideas. Sometimes they end up being like totally inscrutable notes on my like (laughs) iPhone that I'm like, what is it? It's like sunshine epiphany, you know? And I'm like, I have no idea what I thought was so brilliant. When you wrote it, you're like, I'm totally
0: going to be able to connect this later. And then you get there and you're like, not connecting us at all. Yeah,
1: no clue at all. Um, so I do I do a lot of good thinking on hikes for sure. Um, I live in the Bay Area, so there's a lot of like gorgeous nature that mm-hmm. I'm so lucky to get to be in. But yeah, I I really do my best writing, rolling out of bed, cup of coffee, either, you know, hiding somewhere for my children and getting like a couple of hours in. Um, yeah. I can write later because I'm you know, I'm a journalist by training, so I'm kind of a deadline writer. so like if if I've got fire under my ass, like, I'll get it done. But yeah. my favorite time to write is really early in the morning. That's very interesting yeah I, i'm I'm a dead, I like a deadline, it does help me,
0: yeah, sort of get it going. Um, so I know that you identify as a third wave feminist, and I wonder, can you explain what that is in case some of my listeners don't know what it is?
1: Yes, although it's so interesting. I just read this really amazing book called against white feminism, Mm -hmm. um, by this amazing, um, Pakistani writer, American, she's immigrated to America, but, um, grew up in her early years in Pakistan. And she argued that these wave, the wave terminology is actually very American focused and American centric. Because and of, was, like, where people yeah. are in
0: their sort of journey in the U.S., but not necessarily in – okay. Right. Yeah. So it's,
1: like, the the original concept, for those who haven't heard about it, is, like, first wave, second wave, third wave. First wave mm-hmm. was suffrage, getting the right to vote in America. Second wave is, like, the sort of sex wars and Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem in the 70s. And then third wave is, like, people like myself who were born – you know, I was born the last hour of the last day of the 70s. So basically yeah. the 80s and – um and with more of a focus on, again, sort of sex came up, but like uh, the stereotype of the third wave feminist is a focus on kind of aesthetic and and like, you know, getting to be as sexual as men and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I think the part of third wave feminism that I've always loved and identified with is the intersectional aspect. Um, Kimberly say. Crenshaw is this amazing academic who talked about this idea of intersectionality that sexism and racism and classism and um homophobia like all of these things are intertwined and influence both how we experience the world but also how we can take action in it mm-hmm. and fight structural and systemic and cultural uh, oppression so yeah so it's interesting i love that you just asked that and i just read that because i was like oh okay interesting yeah. maybe like third wave is not something i want to keep saying um and i unfortunately i i have had like pretty amazing experiences internationally with feminists but i feel like particularly in the last like in my early years like i actually studied abroad in south africa which is probably such a stereotype to you of <laughs> like all right here's the white girl who's died in south africa but i did and had some really beautiful experiences there. And then I've I've done a lot of reporting like in Malawi and Rwanda and a few other places where like I was able to intersect with some awesome feminists from the global South. Um, and then through some of the the work I've done kind of midwifing other people's stories, I've gotten to meet some amazing global feminists. So it's, it's interesting to me that I never thought to critique this, the wave yeah. metaphor, because it is just- But you
0: don't until like someone does sort of like put it in front of your eyes and you're like, oh, that, that was a blind spot that I just like didn't,
1: Yeah, so, I, I
0: didn't realize because it was a blind spot. So
1: anyway, as of last week, I'm no longer a third wave feminist, <laughs> um, but I am, I do, you know, identify, I, it was deeply uh, influential for me to sort of come of age in the 20s, right when blogs were exploding. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote for this blog called Feministing with a collective of women in New York city. And, um, it was just, it was such an amazing experience and it really, um, sort of shaped my ability to do what I do now a lot, which is step right into the fire of like very controversial topics and know that like, I'm not going to die because someone writes a critical comment. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a lot of that in my twenties and really learned how to kind of right size my own reaction and also really appreciate feedback. Like I, I'm ac- I'm someone who Genuinely appreciates critical feedback as long as it's you know in the spirit of really trying to build and and critique, right. not just like trolling or trashing me. But um, so that was all forged during uh, my twenties with with that incredible group of of feminists that I was writing online with.
0: Well, speaking about you know not knowing to like critique that, it makes me think of your piece that I was mentioning um, the reductive seduction of other people's problems where. You know, I was a person that went and did my master's in international studies and learned Arabic because I wanted to go to the Middle East and like work in refugee camps. And I thought, if you're going to go to someone's land, you need to be able to speak their language. But in your article, you know, you're speaking about how we look at these problems across the world or in the global South and we're like, oh, hey, as an American, of course, I know how I can solve that. But if someone wanted to come here and solve, I mean, we'll take the Everything that's happening with abortion in the U.S., Mm -hmm. where, you know, the way we explain it is it would just be too difficult to to deal with because it's so complicated the way that our laws work and the different legislatures. Um, And I never thought of it that way until I read your article.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the comparative study is so helpful on this particular issue because, um, you know, I opened that piece talking about uh, gun
0: safety Mm -hmm. actually
1: and like painting this picture of this like ugandan teenager who's heard that you know you can get big social entrepreneurship prizes and awards and money for you know going to another country and he's found there's this place called america where they like never figured (laughs) out how to deal with gun safety and you know he's gonna go and and solve the problem um and yeah it's just amazing how how easily we flatten out the complexity of other people's problems, even though up close and proximate to our own societally, particularly, but even intimately, we like think they're just the most complicated thing in the world. Um, And probably Mm -hmm. the truth is somewhere in between, but um, it certainly begs the question why so many American, um, you know, 20-somethings think that they have enough knowledge, experience, expertise to like go to some – um, country in which they have very little knowledge and just like, you know, start a nonprofit organization and start applying for yeah. grants and all the things.
0: And I appreciated that you mentioned Molly Melching because I went to listen to her speak when I was in high school and I was like, oh, and this is important. She's paying attention to the language that she's using with people. It's not just we're going and we're calling it FGM and you're going to have to take my view as a Westerner of how this is horrible. Um, and then sort of the lessons that she learned over time. And I was like, yeah, this is this is how it should be done.
1: Yeah. Yeah, That, and also her v- deeply collective lens on things mm-hmm. as opposed to like individually convincing uh, people to stop a particular cultural practice, understanding that like cultures are embedded in collectives. And that's true in America mm-hmm. too. I mean, this is one of the things that's so hypocritical about the way a lot of Western feminists talk about different places, particularly in the global South, is as, as if they are like truly barbaric versus like there are a bunch of practices and things going on in the U.S. that we sort of explain away um, while pointing to like, you know, the big bad feminism that exists across the ocean.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned, you know, your writing as your purpose work. And I know that your most recent book is called Learning in Public Lessons for a Racially Divided America from My Daughter's School. I'm wondering if you could speak about it and sort of tell us a few of those lessons, because I think Thank a lot you. of parents in the U.S. could probably learn from it.
1: Yeah, it's amazing, because even though that's the subtitle of the book, not one person has asked me that question, Monkey. So really? I love that you asked it, yes. About I mean, the you know, lessons? No. Oh, Oh. <laughs> I mean, it's not a didactic book either. It's not like, here are the seven lessons, you know? Right. But it's just, I love that you were like, uh, that is the subtitle. Um. So, the book is really about it's it's mostly memoir, but with um, a lot of journalism snuck in uh, about <laughs> my own journey. um I'm a a white mom with two kids. I have a eight year old and a um, five year old uh, two daughters, Maya and Stella. And when Maya was little, I started like walking all around our, my neighborhood i I had just moved to Oakland in this like sort of gentrifying um, neighborhood in in Oakland. And I kept walking by this elementary school that seemed beautiful. It was like boisterous and like all these beautiful redwood trees. And um, But then I started to kind of look closer at the playground and I was like, wait, there's like no white kids on that playground. And there's certainly a bunch of young white kids in this neighborhood that I've seen strolling around. Mm. So that question of kind of where are all the white kids led to a journey of a thousand moral miles, as I say in the book, where <laughs> I kind of peeled back all of these layers about the unfinished project of integration in this country. Um, And most people don't even realize, and this is another one of those weird cognitive dissonances, that integration reached its peak in American public schools in 1988. So that's when I was like an eight-year-old child, and it's only gone down from there. So despite all of our romance about Brown v. Board and, um, you know, Ruby Bridges and all of these like sort of iconic stories that America holds dear, we have deeply segregated schools um, and so I started to learn about why that was and to apply that to my local context and and just discovered what feels like a pretty profound hypocrisy, which is that I'm surrounded by these progressive families, m- most of them white, some of them multiracial, economically privileged, who do everything and anything to avoid the local school, which is majority black Um uh high latinx population also and like a quarter newcomers we have a lot of new um immigrants from uh, the middle east and central america um and it's about 75 percent free and reduced lunch which means families who are experiencing you know poverty or close to it um and so we you know the first part of the book is me and my husband to a lesser extent i kind of again dragged him along um (laughs) uh figuring out all of this and like where should we send our daughters and we decided to send them to our local school. Uh, and then the other, uh, you know, three fourths of the book is living into that experience and being very, uh, vulnerable and introspective about what it feels like to be a white person in, and a white mom in that environment, trying to think about, um, you know, how I show up and how much I speak and where and when do I, uh, you know, offer resources and, Mm -hmm. Um, what am I afraid of, and what am I? What turns out to be totally unfounded, and what turns out to actually be confusing around my daughter's experience there, and you know, just really trying to paint a picture of proximity. And I think that's one of the biggest lessons is that um, you know there's a lot of romanticization about proximity, especially among progressive Americans, sort yeah. of like get proximate to the problem, and um, and I think Brian Stevenson's incredible work is like push that forward Ugh. in a way but and i love him um and i love his work but i do i think what I, one of the lessons is sort of prox- getting proximate is profound and it's very complicated it's not some kind of like magic bullet to get proximate you right. can and this is part of what reductive seduction of other people's problems is about too right it's like <laughs> it. it's not that it's it's not worthwhile to um you know actually live the questions instead of thinking about them at an academic distance, especially for white and privileged people. But if you are gonna live the questions, you're gonna have to live the questions. It's gonna be uncomfortable at times. You're gonna have to learn how to apologize. You're gonna have to show up as a real person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And you're gonna have to do stuff you don't always do. For some people that might be shutting up, right? I mean, that's a big edict of sort of the movement I'm now a part of, of white and privileged parents who are showing up at schools is show up, shut up and stay put is the idea. So I wrestle a lot with the shutting up, um, in part because it's actually more natural to me to shut up. But then I also realize that part of why I'm there is to demand excellence for all children at that school. So if my kid is doing okay on standardized tests or learning to read, that's great. But if the mm-hmm. kid who sits next to her, who's like a black kid from a multigenerational family in Oakland, you know, experiencing poverty is not doing well in the test or is not reading at grade level that's got to be my business too in the sense that like this is a collective this is a community and so i wrestle with that in the book so i think uh, the lessons are 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 in part that white and privileged people need to right size our own risk and actually make different decisions live differently we can't just like do another book club on anti-racism and expect the world to change um and that proximity is not simple and it's not it doesn't earn you the gold star of anti-racism like it's it's continues to be a journey but for me the exhaustion from a real journey is like a very edifying exhaustion as opposed to the exhaustion of like should I post the black square on my Instagram like is that the thing I'm supposed to do today you know there's like so much scrambling right now with um, white and progressive people and I think it's It is actually well intentioned. It comes from a very good place in their own hearts. Like I think white people are in America are really not all of them, obviously, Um, (laughs) but there's a proportion of white people who have really woken up over the last two years and are really trying to live differently. But you know, are spending a lot of their energy in still in that place of kind of anxious performance. And Mm -hmm. um, so the book is really my attempt to say, like, what if we live differently? What if we What if we right-sized our own fears and risks and started being in community in different ways, started using our resources in different ways? Um, And ultimately, the lesson is like integration is not the answer, um, but it is an answer. And it's worth trying, um, particularly given that we forced black and brown families to do the hard things in terms of school integration for so many years. Um, you know, get that make their little kids get on buses and go to neighborhoods yeah. and schools that didn't welcome them. Um so my you know white daughter walking into a school where she's the minority but is totally welcomed seems like a pretty small um risk, you know, and it has proven to be it's it's this most beautiful community. She's thriving, and now my little one just started kindergarten this year. she's thriving. Um, I've learned so much and have so many important friendships there. So it's, it's borne out to be just this really joyful, sometimes uncomfortable, like I said, but totally joyful experience. And I mean, life is uncomfortable. Um, I I know that something I think parents struggled with a
0: lot last year, or when I say parents, I mean, white parents was the whole like, well, but our kids are too young for us to like be discussing like race and bringing this to them. And, you know, black parents' response is like, well, we have to discuss it with them because- this is their, their life. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering, like, is have you found a way that you can discuss this with your eight-year-old and five-year-old that you think is helpful for other white parents to sort of take on board?
1: Well... One one thing is I think you do a lot less discussing in like this abstract way when you're living in community with people of, of various racial and nas- nationalities and, you know, language backgrounds and everything else because it's just like a natural part of our experiences Life. that our kids yeah, will be like, happening. yeah, like why does so and so, you know, wear her hair like this? And then we have a conversation about that. Um, so... I actually find the conversations are very organic. That's one of my gifts of being at this school is is the conversations I have with my daughters are quite organic because they're embedded in their own questions about stuff they're experiencing at school or st- stuff I can kind of point out to that they experienced at school. Um, so that's one thing. But the other thing is I don't actually I, – I completely understand that white parents have the privilege of thinking they don't need to talk about this with their young kids But part of my argument in the book is that there is kind of a a spiritual wound at the center of whiteness and that little kids feel it. Like when, when they notice differences, which they do, there's all this scientific research about that kids are very tribal and like totally notice like those are the boys, those are the girls, those are the black kids, those are the white kids. So they're noticing all of this. And if white people are silent about it it just continues to perpetuate this sense of like something's wrong with white people and there is something wrong with white people i mean that's the, <laughs> the the truth so like how do i my my thinking is more like i feel that it's urgent and necessary for me to talk about race and gender and you know all the things with my kids as early as possible a because they're noticing it anyway but b because I don't want them to grow up with this sense of kind of a double consciousness that, like, on the one hand, things seem really fucked up. On the other hand, like, everyone around us is compartmentalizing it to say, like, it's not really our fault somehow that we have a house and, like, no one else does around the block or, you know, we in Oakland, we have a huge unhoused population. So I want to keep those innate questions about justice and redistribution and stuff. I want to not only keep those alive in my kids but like encourage them and and right. be like no that's right like this is fucked up like what what can we do about it and how do we you know sit within systems and cultures that are broken knowing we can't fix them and we're not going to be white saviors but like how do we acknowledge them and think about think about living differently and tolerate and and like live with and be honest about all of these Um, things that are that are are deeply wrong. So that's a complicated thing to do. But actually, like little kids, I find are pretty incredible at wrapping their brains around that kind of complexity and then just like continuing to show up in relationship with their friends and. Um, you know conti- and they're such dreamers you know they have like such yeah. beautiful imaginations about how things could be different and such <laughs> such like I had this great this is an example like I had this great moment where my mother-in-law who's a white woman from Milwaukee Wisconsin um, th- there was a basketball player who has a, a Greek name black guy but has a Greek name on the Milwaukee Bucks who's very beloved Um, but it's hard for everyone to pronounce. And it's been like a big thing for like the white people of Milwaukee to learn how to pronounce this guy's name. And so we were talking about his name and then, and um, my mother-in-law and my um, daughter were playing checkers. And my mother-in-law says to her like, so do you have a lot of kids at your school with um, like different sounding names? And Maya just kind of looked at her and she's like, no. And I realized like, (laughs) Because Maya doesn't even have the reference. Yeah, for
0: like what that would mean. Yeah, she's like, yeah, I mean, these are the names that she's, yeah. Yeah,
1: there's like Barack and like Gordon and, you know, like there's like all of these like variety of names. But to her, they're not, not, they're they're not not normal. Like she she just doesn't even have that point of reference. So it's like, I love that on the one hand, they are able to just embrace this whole different idea about what's normal via their living in a big city and and being in this community multiracial community they're a part of um on the other hand we're not pretending it's this like perfect melting pot and like everyone at school is equal so we're like having real conversations about well like if, for example i'm making them eat school lunch which they're like so mad about and <laughs> and they're like why and i'm like because everybody at your school gets to eat the same lunch and then it doesn't create like the same sense of difference. It's not very fair if you show up with you know, your like seaweed packets and you're like mm-hmm. I'm I'm actually terrible at packing lunches. So that's the it's other awful. secret. <laughs> yeah. But if I were to pack a lunch, I know that it looks I've learned now that like that's this moment of proximity that really points out difference to the kids because it's like some of the kids are getting the school lunch because their parents mm-hmm. can't afford to pack their lunch and then my kid is showing up with this like, you know, in In a more romantic version, it would be like the bento box of whatever <laughs> and um, and so that's like something they know now is like, nope, we're gonna eat the school lunch. It's like i hope I want the school lunch to be better for everybody, and like I'll keep yeah. fighting for that, but like, um, so those are these lived moments where they get to bump up against some of these questions and i I think, like you said, life is uncomfortable, like I want them yeah. to grow the muscles to to know that and to adjust to that and to think critically about different choices they make Um, and I don't think that's going to happen you know I think that's kind of what leads to the reductive seduction of other people's problems like the 25 year old white kid who thinks they know everything because they haven't bumped up against this stuff whereas if you bumped Mm -hmm. up against it, you're like oh no I, I get how complicated these questions are in a lived daily way and I don't think we give kids enough
0: credit you know my mom like always says like you like kids do see difference it's just, they don't necessarily like put these values on right. the differences that we do. And they learn to put these values because of us, because, you know, they ask a question and we make that face like, oh God, don't ask that. And that's, you know, what they're learning.
1: Exactly. Um,
0: and yeah, and like, we could just learn so much from them actually.
1: Yeah, totally. Well, I I write about this in the book, but I've had all these little moments with my kids where like there's this one book series called Fancy Nancy that's like this little white girl mm-hmm. who, like and yeah. I hate it. I like abhor it. And my daughters <laughs> love it. And they're always like, Please read Fancy Nancy. I'm like, Okay. And they know I hate it, but they like so one night they my older daughter was like, Please read the Fancy Nancy Stargazer. It's this one about her camping out in her backyard and looking at the constellations. And so I read it begrudgingly. And then the next night she, I'm, you know, closing the door to put her to bed. And she's like, hey, mama, do you know why I asked you to read Fancy Nancy? And I said, no. And she said, because Fancy Nancy calls that constellation the Big Dipper. But Harriet Tubman called it the drinking gourd when she was leading the slaves out of slavery. Mrs. Minor taught me. This is her transitionary kindergarten teacher. So she wasn't even in kindergarten yet. And I was trying to figure out why does Fancy Nancy call it that? And Harriet Tubman called it something else. And it's like, here I was being a total asshole being like, I don't want to read Fancy Dancy like yeah. this snob. And she's like, you know, figuring out she's this She's trying like, to learn. Ontological puzzle about like <laughs> slavery and language and like, so it's like, and you know, I don't, I'm very careful about it. like, I'm not presenting my daughter as some genius. It's just like, this is what happens when kids are in schools where they're having hard conversations when they're little. Is there yeah. like, because a lot of people would say like, you taught a f- four and five year olds about slavery. It's like- Yeah. And then they started making meaning of it. They're going to survive the conversation. Exactly. And not only that, but like get creative about making comparative meaning about it in like the literature that they're being exposed to. I mean, yeah, I just it it gets into all this critical race theory controversy, I guess. But I I feel strongly that kids kids have the capacity. and, And I do also this is one other piece of it for me is like, I think we need to give white kids like my daughter's. Uh, examples also of white people who at every different moment throughout history have fought against some of this like immorality. You know, you think about like white mm-hmm. Quakers during slavery who refused to wear cotton as a way to not be complicit. Um, yeah. Or like Anne Braden is this amazing figure in Louisville, Kentucky who bought homes during redlining um, for black families under her name and ended up going to jail for it. So I, I do think it's important that our white kids see you know, whiteness is, is not only about depravity, like that we have to face up to it. And it, there's plenty, Mm -hmm. um, for us to face up to, and we can be different. We can make different choices. We can like use our power differently so that they feel that sense of like, okay, I want to be like the Anne Braden, um, uh, of, of what, of my time, whatever version of that it it might be.
0: And I know that, you know, I know that your writing is, is sort of, and a part of activism, but I also know that you do your activism in other creative ways that A, was like warming to my heart because these are things that as a Black person, I'm like, yeah, this is what we all should be doing. But I think that some people don't know to do it. And I wonder if you could speak about your activism, um, for example, like when you are asked to be on an all-white panel and how you respond to that.
1: Yeah. So I, I don't do all white panels. Um, I always say like, is there a person of color on the panel? If there isn't, then I will suggest one to replace my invitation and, or I'm happy to join if, if they want to add more people of color, but obviously too many people on a panel is, is like death by panel. (laughs) So that's, (laughs) I'm fine to step out, um, if that's the case. Um, and also I just try to think a lot about how to share opportunities that I have, um, like with this book that I had just come out, there's this uh, important person at kind of the center of of the narrative who is my kids' TK transition kindergarten teacher, amazing Black woman educator, born and raised in Oakland, and she contributed so much to my own growth and my own knowledge, um, that I feel really uh, clear that I want her to be speaking next to me whenever we can do that. So like we've done a podcast together and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've helped her work on an op-ed of her own. And so, like, I think a lot about um, sort of sharing either speaking opportunities or just giving people that I write about, because that's inherent to my work, the chance to speak on their own terms, whether that's in an op-ed if they want to or in other ways and, and be supportive of them. And I actually find that people are like the sort of uh, hosts, like people who invite me to speak on panels or or give keynotes or things like that are often very receptive to this. And so it's it's not, again, white people right sizing their own risk. Like, I don't tend to get pushback. People are really intrigued and like, oh, yeah, I'd love to hear from her. Like, I loved her part Mm -hmm. in the book. That would be so interesting. Um, So so that's just a, a very small thing. But now that it's part of my mindset, it's a really nice thing to kind of walk around in the world with.
0: Yeah.
1: And I wonder, um, you know,
0: the, the last year has been a difficult time for every, everyone, even if, you know, we have roofs over our heads and, and have incomes. What has sort of sustained you in difficult moments?
1: Mm. Well, definitely my community. I have two um, women who are in my same boat where we all have like very small children and we're in this very, I'm like looking over because I can see exactly where their <laughs> houses are right now as we're talking. Um, we jokingly call each other sister wives and we had plenty (laughs) of moments where we would just like, you know, either lose our minds together or be like, I'm having a really hard time. Mm -hmm. I need to, to get some support. Um, so those two women completely got me through. I'm so lucky because one of them happens to be an educational psychologist. So she's like literally a child psychologist. (laughs) I could be like, oh my gosh, Stella's obsessed with death. Like, is that okay? And she's like, yeah, it's fine. This is totally normal. This is Um, the age that they they ask all the death questions. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And my Stella, she's like, oh, she's just this, she's got a massive heart. heart, And I think somehow some like deep ancestral connection because she just, she feels death. She wants to talk about it a lot. She Mm -hmm. even tells us she... Is, a, is sad she didn't get to know people who died before she was born and she'll, like, name them and we didn't even know she was, like, listening to us talk about that person. She must have met them before then. I mean, do you believe that? I
0: I believe that if the child comes after someone has passed, they probably met them, like, in the interim.
1: Wow. All right. I'm going to carry that with me because it does feel like something is going on with her that's, Yeah, if, like, yeah, very if like someone's name
0: sticks with her, I feel like that's someone she's probably met and, like, so she feels their, like, spirit or something. Well, because South Africans obviously we're very much about the ancestors. So. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I I love that because I it does feel like something something is different with her. Um, but it is it is developmentally appropriate for like four year olds to talk about death a lot. But she <laughs> yeah. takes it to another level. Um, so anyway, I'm just those women in particular have just completely carried me through. Um, my writing has really helped me so much. I mm-hmm. I started my newsletter before COVID <clears throat> began, but I wrote through it and uh, my readers were just like, so generous and you mm-hmm. know, I would write about different sort of inchoate feelings and patterns I was noticing quite unsure if it was gonna be of service to people, but hoping it would be. And I've had so much feedback that it really helped people feel accompanied at this completely bizarre apocalyptic moment. Um, yeah. And that's one of the gifts of of a newsletter is I don't have to pitch anyone Um, and it would be so hard to pitch the kind of stuff I write. Sometimes it's like, I want to write about like how it's like to be alive is to notice small things and also to know your kids could die any minute. You know, like the stuff I'm writing is so random and like emotional and interior and spiritual and like, any editor in like a traditional journalistic framework would just be like what <laughs> what's the news <laughs> this is like so bizarre so i'm very grateful to have that space where i can just do my weird weird stuff yeah. and and people respond well speaking of your newsletter it's, it's called examined family i yeah. think mm-hmm. and
0: I saw that it was something about, you know, people who get all twisted up inside thinking about the brokenness of our world. And I was like, hello, that is me. Um, you know, I see something like some sort of injustice and I like want to cry. Like my stomach is in knots. Um, Speaking of your and...
1: ancestors, you've got that like ancestral <laughs> lineage of outrage. Yeah. And,
0: and I like, feel it in my body. Yeah. And so I was wondering, like, how how do you tell people or, you know, in the newsletter, advise people to sort of keep living and loving and being humble and brave in this fucked up world
1: well I mean my first thought is like what other choice do you have but I think it's like we have Valid. to to depend on on each other I mean I'm you know such a collectivist I'm always encouraging people to think more collectively and and sort of get out of their own way um I think mm-hmm. when I feel really overwhelmed it's often because I'm being too self-focused as opposed to kind of right-sizing whatever's going on with me and like yeah. figuring out how I can move with people. Um, but I also, I really, and this fits again into this reductive seduction thing, I really believe in local community, local action, like the power of local. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that I'm not interested in scale or interested in in global solutions. Um, and I deeply care about issues that are, you know, for example, right now, access to vaccines, um, you know, things that are not affecting me immediately. But I I just feel like the wisdom of taking responsibility for like your little piece of land, your little Mm -hmm. life, your little family, you know, in our case, this school and pouring yourself into those places in, in a thoughtful, very committed, long term way um is so strengthening so even in these moments of dread and apocalypse and pandemic and climate change you know and i can get very down and and feel very worried about not only my own future but especially my daughter's future but i think when i can kind of dig in locally and and feel like well come what may i'm yeah. i'm going to keep showing up in this in this space and these spaces and i'm going to keep you know strengthening my daughter's ability to be resilient and think collectively. And and that's where I'm going to find meaning. Um, so I think that's part of it. And then, you know, just like joy and pleasure and delight. I mean, part of like these sister wives who got me through the pandemic was also we would like play <laughs> 90s hip hop and R&B in the courtyard and like embarrass our children by like having random dance parties in the middle of the day. And um, so I, I just get you know, a lot of strength by just continuing to focus on pleasure and joy and, and friendship and laughter. And, you know, my husband and I got a really uh, amazing ability to laugh at each other throughout the COVID year and like make fun of each other. And I think that's how we stayed married. And, um, so it's, it's that light and dark piece, right. Is like holding, holding on to all of it in order to keep going.
0: What would you say is your greatest fear for humanity?
1: Um, I think I, what whatever the meta version of this <laughs> micro moment is, which I think about a lot, like when you're on your deathbed and you're lying there, you know, your proverbial deathbed and you're thinking like, did I spend my time the right way? Did I spend my energy, mm-hmm. my love the right way? Um, I think collectively we, if like we're thinking about the whole world on our deathbed The answer is no, you know, like capitalism, um, you know, consuming so much stuff like taking up more than our share, um, particularly, you know, this American context or like a white American context. Like I don't you know, I think that is what is my biggest fear is just a real confusion about what matters and how to feel alive and Mm -hmm. feel like, we matter as people. And so I guess that's p- part of the bet with my writing being so personal is that, like, I am I do believe there's a connection between the two. Like, I feel like if if I can personally get in touch with, like, that deathbed feeling and think, like, would I care if my daughter went to, like, the best, quote-unquote, most highly resourced elementary school when I'm on my deathbed? Or would I be thinking, it's really cool she had this, like, beautiful multicultural community that she was raised in yeah um I'm pretty sure my deathbed answer is the latter right so it's and then that can lead me to these bigger questions of like do we really need you know to travel as much as you know I'm thinking about even from a work travel perspective how much we traveled pre-pandemic I don't think so like I think we can there are things we need to do to like limit and focus locally and find joy Um, In smaller moments, that would be good for the whole planet that we can do in our individual lives. Um, So I guess I guess I just fall back on this sort of like deathbed metaphor of like, how how do you individually assess what you do on a daily basis, according to that? And then how could we collectively societally think about that? It's very interesting. No one has said that. So I'm going to I'm going to think about that now. I didn't know I was going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know
0: if that works, but we can no, it play does. It does. That. It does. It totally works. Because I want to think about it now. And then also, what is your greatest hope for humanity?
1: The opposite, right, is like yeah, being yeah. on that deathbed and just being like, "Wow, I got to be alive at all! Like, what a gift!" And like, <clears throat> you know, I know I spent my energy and my love in these beautiful ways. I, I um, hosted this conference multiple years. I'm really, it's funny now that I'm thinking about it because I talked about Stella being obsessed with death. I'm kind of obsessed with death (laughs) myself. So she probably comes by it quite honestly, but I, um, I hosted this conference a few years in a row called end well, which is really beautiful, um, day of talks from people who are innovating in and and serving those in the death and dying and palliative care community. And, Mm -hmm. um, one of the speakers, uh, gave this incredible talk about soundscapes and hospitals and like the sounds people hear on their deathbeds. And Ooh. one of the questions she asked us was, what is the last sound you would want to hear? And it was such an amazing question. And I immediately knew like my daughter's laughter is the, what I would want to hear. Um, but and so I think that is like my wish for humanity is like, you know to be able to either individually or societally like be at the end of our lives and and just feel like what a deep profound gift it is to be alive at all and yeah. feel really good about the way we've loved on others the way we've been loved and um, you know, like to hear whatever that last sound is for you, which I think is so symbolic of like what actually matters or what gives yeah. you comfort and pleasure and beauty. And and that's kind of the point of being here too, right? It is justice for sure, um, but is also just your ability to be present enough to experience the beauty of being alive at all.
0: Oh my God. This what would be that your last like,
1: sound? Do you know? I don't know. Maybe my husband's saying that he loves
0: me. and I- like oh, yeah so nice probably something like that it's okay he doesn't listen to the podcast so he'll never hear that <laughs>
1: <laughs> we gotta get him to listen to this episode now the point is actually not him but you right because like next time he says that in passing you'll I'll be like that, yeah oh that would that is the thing because sometimes I yeah. hear my kids laughing now and I remember that talk and I'm like oh hear it hear it hear it like really take it in yeah, because like enjoy it yeah yeah oh my goodness oh um, okay well I could literally keep going but
0: me too thank you so much for coming thank the you podcast. so much it's let's been stay so in touch great. Let's oh stay no I touch. would love to I hope you enjoyed this conversation today and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts follow me at moongi.ingomane on instagram I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support, Claire Miglionico. Marketing and digital growth, Kayla Gillis. And partnerships, Natalie Hope.